You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. So this series that we're currently in is called Jesus Over Everything, and we started this series two weeks ago. Uh, And in that first week of this series, we talked about the theological idea of Jesus being over everything. What does that mean for us, that Jesus is over everything, that he is supreme and preeminent over everything, everything seen, unseen, um, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that he is Lord of all. What does that look like? So we just talked about this idea and kind of unpacked it together. Last weekend in Blairsville, Pastor Colin preached, and in here, uh, here at Indiana, Pastor Steph preached, And they both did a fantastic job kind of applying that. What does that look like for us as individuals if Jesus is over everything? And then this weekend, what I would like us to do is just talk about what does that mean for us as a church? If Jesus is over everything, what does that mean? And so really, this is the question we're gonna be asking and answering today. What happens when we put Jesus over everything as a church? What what is the result of that? Now, here's the thing. I have the opportunity, the the privilege of being able to speak to and into a lot of different churches and pastors all over our region, but really in different parts of our country as well. And every church in America thinks they put Jesus over everything. Every church in America thinks that. No matter what their style is, no matter what their attendance is, no matter what their denomination is, they all think they're killing this one thing. We are doing it great. Uh, But the truth is, not every church does. And I'm not worried about every other church today, but what I wanna focus on is our church. What does it mean for us, for Summit Church, if we put Jesus over everything? What are the results gonna be? What does that mean for us? And so, as we unpack this together today for a few minutes, I want you to know, we're gonna be talking about us as a church corporately, but, but really, there's a lot of application, I hope, for you individually as well. So if you like lists. I got good news for you today. I've got three points. I've told you before, every great sermon has three points. Uh, The the better sermon has alliteration for the points or rhyme. So my sermon's a good sermon. It's got three points. It's not a great sermon though. So lower your expectations just a little bit today. Uh, It's not going to be great. It's pretty good because I got three points. So the first point is this, what happens when we put Jesus over everything as a church? Number one, conflict decreases. When we as a church put Jesus over everything, conflict decreases. Now, here's the thing. Um, I lean into conflict. I don't mind conflict. I think conflict can actually be a really good thing. Conflict's not a bad thing. Unresolved conflict is a really bad thing. If you have a marriage and you have no conflict at all, there's probably problems there. There's probably issues in your marriage that you're not willing to talk about. You just push it all down and hope it doesn't come out. But there's issues. You got conflict, you're just living in unresolved conflict. I think conflict can be a good thing because in the other side of conflict, there's resolution. There's peace, hopefully. Um, So conflict's not necessarily a bad thing, but what I'm talking about today is the conflict that leads to drama. And how many of you know drama is not a good thing? Okay, a few of you I'm not sure about. You're the ones that like to watch uh, reality television. Because if you're on reality television, drama is king, right? Um, but I hate drama. And I think drama is toxic in churches. And so one of the things we see is in healthy churches, drama is decreasing. In churches that put Jesus over everything, drama decreases. So this last week, 
uh, actually a week and a half, we were, in, uh, we were in Greece and we did a Footsteps of Paul tour with some other pastors that, that we're close to and it was, it was really good. Um, but here's the thing, on the tour, what would happen is we'd go visit a site and the tour guide would tell us about some things and I'd get curious and I would Google, um, what about, and I would want a little more information what they were offering. And so um, the algorithm, my algorithm has changed for Google. Now all I'm getting is a steady stream of Greek history and Rome, I'm getting Rome. Like, do men think about Romans there? Are the, Roman Empire every day? I do, because Google's making me. So every day I'm seeing this stuff. And so this last week, a few days ago, uh, on my news feed, an article popped up that was the 10 largest world empires of all time. And so I read through it, and it gives a synopsis. And some of these empires were empires you have never heard of before. If you taught history, uh, advanced world history uh, at the university level, you may not have ever heard of this, you know, some of these global empires. I was surprised that there was a couple I'd never heard of, but, but some of them were the big ones that, you know, like the British empire or whatever. And it was amazing to see how they were built, how they advanced. There were unique things about all these different cultures, all these different empires, their values, their, their cultures, um, how they fought, just all kinds of differences. But one of the similarities that almost all the empires had in common was that what led to the demise of the empire wasn't external conflict, but internal conflict. These empires that ruled close to a quarter of the population of the world and a quarter of the landmass of the world failed because of internal conflict. Because people got political and uprisings and coups and different things were happening. It wasn't that an army came against them. It was that they couldn't get along with each other. See, in, in healthy churches, in churches that put Jesus over everything, conflict will and should decrease. One of our core values here at Summit is healthy relationships. And so what we endeavor to do is to love sacrificially and resolve conflict biblically. And so what that means is I want to default to love. I want to love first and not just love the way we go, oh, I love strawberries. Um, but I mean a love that truly is sacrificial. So if I can start by loving you sacrificially, it's going to solve a lot of problems in our relationship. But if it doesn't solve the problems, the next thing we do is whatever the conflict is, we're going to resolve it biblically. Because the Bible has some things to say about how to resolve conflict, how to fix issues in relationships. And this is really important. And we don't just go to any place in scripture. We go directly to Jesus. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, there's a section of his sermon where he's talking about um, how the standards are raised. So he says things like, hey, you've heard it said, you shouldn't commit adultery, but I say don't even look lustfully on a woman. And so what he's saying is, hey, it's not just about what we do, it's about our heart. And so he gets to this section in chapter five, verse 21, and he says, hey, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. And how many of us can agree it's a bad thing to commit murder, right? That's probably frowned upon. Yeah. Yeah. Really? <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe I need to change directions for this sermon today. <laughs> So we agree, you shouldn't be murdering people. That's a bad thing. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shouldn't commit murder. But I'm telling you today, don't even hate somebody in your heart. That's sinful, to hate in your heart. And then he talks about, basically, how do we keep from hating people? And he starts in verse 23, and he says this in Matthew 5. 
So if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. Now, for Jewish people, a sacrifice at the altar at the temple was a very holy thing, very important to do as far as my life goes and being reconciled to God. But, but Jesus says, hey, if you are at the temple offering a sacrifice at the altar and you remember that there's a, someone with a problem with you, go fix it. He says, go take care of it. And what, in that moment, what he's saying is, what's more important than being reconciled to God in this moment is being reconciled to man. And this feels like it's hard for us to grasp this. Because we go, well, that doesn't make sense. So, so let me explain it to you this way. Um, if we were talking and you said, Mel, I love you. You're fantastic. Thanks for all you've done. But I can't stand your daughters. I probably wouldn't be like, yeah, I get it. They're the worst, right? I would probably have a check in my spirit. I'd say, okay, well, what's the problem with my daughters? What's going on? And before you know it, there would be an issue between you and I because you've got an issue with my daughters. And although my daughters are not perfect, they're my daughters and I love them very much. And if you've got a problem with my daughters, you probably have a problem with me. And this is the principle we see at work in this passage of scripture. Jesus is saying, hey, if you've got problems with a child of God, you've, you've got a problem with God. Because this is somebody that God loves deeply and that Jesus died for. And he says, so go fix the problem with them first, even if it's not your problem. Because this is where we would go, well, it's not my problem. I've forgiven them. I don't have any issues. I'm mature. Uh, I don't know why they've got a problem with me. And this is where we as the mature one need to take the step to try to reconcile and fix the relationship. Because if I've got problems with people, I've got a problem with God. And if I can't fix my problem with people, then I'm gonna have, continue to have a problem with God. He goes on to say this in chapter 18. We fast forward now to chapter 18. Jesus says, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. So he said, if somebody sins against you, what do you do? Well, you go to them privately. Did you hear me say that? Privately, that means one-on-one. -on -one. You go to them privately and say, can we talk? I need to tell you something. You are a jerk and you hurt me and I'm so angry at you. That's not really the way you're supposed to do it, by the way. But that's what we wanna do, isn't it? That's not what we do. Let me just give you practical advice. Here's what you do. If somebody hurts you, you go to them and you say something like this. Hey, listen, I, I want you to know, you may not even know this happened, but when you did this, when you said that, man, it really bothered me. Like I was, I was offended and I, know, I don't think that was your intent, but I needed to talk to you about it. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I got upset. Can we just talk about this though? Because then it, 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 it kind of deflates the situation. It keeps it from being adversarial. You were mean to me and you offended me. Now fix it. Say you're sorry. 
to, hey, I wanna resolve this. Can, I wanna walk with you. I, I, I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt in this moment. And this is one of the most powerful things we can do. I say this all the time. One of the, the, the ways that we can be most generous in our lives is by simply giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. When somebody does something or says something that's a little hurtful to us or offensive, instead of defaulting to, well, they're evil and they're out to get me. What if we default to, they probably didn't mean to do that. They have no idea what's going on in my life. They didn't intend to do that. It's helpful in your marriage when your spouse keeps doing things that it's annoying to you instead of just going, well, they hate me and that's why they leave their socks on the floor all the time. Or they hate me, that's why they don't push the drawer in or don't take the trash out or whatever it is. And these are just random. These aren't things in our marriage, by the way. But when we give the benefit of the doubt, it's amazing how healing this is. And in this moment, that's how you approach the other person. But you go directly to them one-on-one and you have the conversation first and foremost. Then in verse 16, it says, but if you're unsuccessful, so if it doesn't work, if they don't repent, if they don't say, man, I was, I'm stupid, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? Then what do you do? Well, you escalate. It says, take one or two others with you as a, as a witness, basically. So go back again so that everything can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. Then verse 17 says, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector. And some of you, you're like, let's just get to that part because I don't mind treating somebody as a pagan or tax collector. They're jerks and they're mean and they deserve. But this isn't even meaning like be mean to them. What it means is uh, shift your expectations for them. So scripture makes it very clear. Our expectations should be different for people who are believers and people who are unbelievers, okay? If somebody is not a believer, we shouldn't expect them to act like believers. Our expectations are off. Um, I've told you before, a few years ago, uh, our friends at FCA, they invited me to stand on the sideline during a IUP football game. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I didn't know a lot of the football players. And I also didn't know a lot of the curse words that were coming out of their mouth. I was like, they are inventing curse words on the sidelines. I'm like, I gotta take note of this because these are spectacular, right? I'm like, I don't know. I need the interpretation for this. Bless them, Lord. It's crazy. So, but I didn't get offended. Do you know why? Because I don't expect lost people to act like found people, Okay. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is, hey, you've got to switch your expectations. You thought they were a brother or sister, but they're not, they're not a believer. If they're unwilling to humble themselves and be reconciled in relationship, then they're not actually a believer. So shift your expectations. It doesn't mean don't love them, don't treat them well. It just means the relationship can't be what you thought it was going to be. And usually this is where this, the passage ends, where we stop talking about this, but this isn't all. Let me keep going. Matthew 18, 18, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. So another translation says, whatever you bind up on earth will be bound up in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this feels weird. It feels like he's taking this hard turn, but I want you to hear this. The physical world has spiritual implications. So the things we do in the physical world have heavenly implications. So when I refuse to forgive in the physical world, it has spiritual implications. Jesus is saying, this is in conjunction with this previous passage, and he is saying, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. There is something powerful about 
agreement about us coming together and, and forgiving one another, extending grace to one another that extends far beyond the physical relationship of this world. Let me read on. Verse 19, Jesus said this. I also tell you this. If two of you, two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. Now, I grew up in a little church in Mustang, Oklahoma. And this little church, my, I think my pastor's favorite passage was this right there. Where two or three to get, uh, gather together, I am there also. And he would say on a Sunday night, there'd be... 12 people in the room on a Sunday night and he would say, well, that's okay because where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there also and we'd feel good about, you know, we weren't, nobody's here, but at least Jesus is here and that was like our consolation, right? And there's nothing wrong with that, but the point of the verse isn't just, oh, there's just a few of us, but Jesus is still here. The point of the verse is about agreement because look at this again. If two of you agree on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. He's talking about the power of agreement. He's talking about the power of coming together and believing together and let our faith mingle with each other so that you and I can believe for bigger things than I could on my own. That we can believe together. And what happens is it's a catalyst. What happens in the physical is a catalyst for what happens in the spiritual. That there are things happening in the spiritual realm that we can't see because of what is happening in the physical realm. So when I come into agreement with you, when I extend forgiveness to you, when you extend forgiveness to me, something is loosed in the heavenly realm. Likewise, when I bear unforgiveness towards you or you bear unforgiveness toward me, when there is not reconciliation, something negative is loosed in the spiritual. This is why marriage is so important. And I'm not, if you're here today and you are living with your significant other or you are engaging in marital activities that you are not, uh, you're not married, is that a safe way to say it with kids in the room? If you're doing that, I want you to know something. I love you, but you are living outside of God's best for you. And so when we say things like, well, we could get married, but it's just a piece of paper, we are overlooking what happens that there is a physical union that happens that has spiritual heavenly implications. So when we understand, hey, I'm getting married and I am in covenant with this person, that covenant extends far beyond the physical into the spiritual, into the heavenly. There are things that are happening in the spiritual because of what's happening in the physical. There are implications for us in that. So what happens? When we put Jesus over everything in church, conflict decreases. Second thing is this, health increases. Drama goes down, health goes up. So we're part of a number of different uh, organizations, church organizations, and uh, I get frustrated at times because we will, they will talk in vague terms about health, church health. Hey, we want to see healthy churches. It's like, I do too. What does that mean? Well, we just want to see churches who are vibrant. I do too. What does that mean? Well, we just want to see churches that represent Jesus well in their community. Yeah, me too. What do you mean? How do we measure that, right? Because if we don't have a measurement for health, we don't really have a measurement for unhealth either. If we just kind of know it when we see it, that feels... Kind of random. And so when we start trying to apply metrics, it gets tricky too. Because then we can say things like, well, uh, is attendance a good measure of church health? Mm, 
not really. It can be, but it's not in and of itself because our church is growing attendance-wise, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy. What about finances? Well, our church is growing financially. That doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy. And I've heard people say, healthy things are growing things. Yes, to some degree. But I also know things that are growing that aren't healthy. My, my PCP, he was in the first service today. My PCP, um, if I go to my doctor and I'm with him and I'm like, doctor, am I healthy? He's like, well, you're growing. So I'm healthy. Like, well, you're right. I'm 46. I probably shouldn't still be growing at this point. My growth spurt should be completed. But yet if I'm growing, that's a problem. Some of you, have had the unfortunate circumstance of battling cancer in your family. There's not a single person in the world that's like, hey, my cancer's growing, I'm doing great. It's growing, doesn't mean it's healthy. And so if we simply measure health by growth, that's a problem. So it can't just be health. So let me go back to my doctor. If I go to my doctor, um, it's funny because I've got friends that work out every day and I'll talk to them and go, how are you doing? And they go, oh, I'm so sore. Uh, one of our IEP athletes, I was talking to him before service and I said, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm sore. Here's the thing. I don't work out, never sore. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't know if I'm a superhero. I just, I feel fantastic. I've got, I've got friends, they run eight miles a day and they're like, oh, my feet are killing me. I feel good. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what your people, your problem is, but I'm doing great. But as I get older, I'm 46 and I'm starting to have some like mystery issues with my body. Have you ever experienced that before? Where you're like, huh, I haven't done anything, but now I've got this shooting pain in my foot or my, whatever it is. You go to your doctor and your doctor will say, oh, you've got a problem here and you're not, you're not healthy because you've got a problem in your body. Now, if that problem is left undiagnosed or treated, what can happen is my, my pain from my ankle or my knee, as my body compensates for it, it will cause problems in the other parts of my body. Because now my knee is handling issues it shouldn't have been handling because my other knee's not doing its job. And so I think a picture of health in human body is when all the parts of your body are functioning the way it's supposed to function. Now that is a gross generalization, but I think the same could be said in churches when all the parts of the body are functioning in the way it's supposed to function. And I didn't make this up. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus and he says this, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. I want you to catch this. As each part does its own special work. What's important for us to understand is every part of the body is important. And if one part of the body is not doing and functioning the way it's supposed to function, the other parts of the body have to compensate for it. And now the other parts of the body are not doing what they're supposed to do because they're trying to compensate for this part that's not doing what it's supposed to do. And this is a, a picture of churches in America. Churches in America are filled statistically, about 40% of people who attend churches do 100% of the work. And really more accurately, it's more like 25% of the people that attend a church do most of the work. What that means is about 60% of people that attend church on a weekend do not do anything to contribute. They're a part of the body, but they are, are, are functionally useless. 
So what you have is people who attend a church, they, they will consume, they will um, hear the preaching, they will hear the worship, they will leave, and they functionally don't do anything as far as engagement with the body of Christ. And so what happens is you've got parts of the body that are compensating for the parts of the body that aren't doing what they're supposed to do. So healthy parts of the body are being stressed in ways that they're not supposed to be because not every part of the body is doing what it's supposed to be doing. I knew I wouldn't get a lot of amens on that part for some reason. And this is what happens in churches. This is what happens in the body. But in, in churches where we say, Jesus, you're over everything, the health increases. And the reason the health is increasing is because number one, drama's decreasing. We will fight to have healthy relationships. But the other part of it is people begin to find their places. They go, hey, I'm not satisfied just consuming. I'm not satisfied just showing up and hearing a sermon. I, I wanna contribute. I wanna be part of the solution for my church and for my region, for the people in this area that need Jesus. I wanna step into everything that God's got for me. Another passage from Ephesians chapter two says this. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. And Paul's talking here to Gentiles. So Paul spoke more predominantly to Gentiles and Jews, and Peter spoke more directly to Jews than Gentiles. So here Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus, and he's talking primarily to Gentile, non-Jewish believers. And he said, so you're no longer strangers or aliens, but you're fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. So he says, you've been, you've been grafted in, you've been adopted into this family. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So he said, hey, we are a church that is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets with the cornerstone, the, the, the standard for us all is Jesus Christ. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he's, he's painting a picture for the believers. And he says, here's the thing. Um, we're, we're a church. And for the most part, when he was writing this, they didn't have big structures and churches for, for, for the Christians to meet in. What they were doing is meeting in homes. And he's painting a picture of, these, uh, of, of, a, of a temple, and he says, let me describe this for you. The cornerstone is Jesus. The foundation that's laid is the apostles and prophets. He's talking about the word of God that was written for us. And then he says, and you and I are being built together into this holy temple to, to carry the presence of God, to carry and steward the glory of God. This is what God is doing. He's making us the temple of God. Now, here's the thing. Um, I can get a little frustrated sometimes with solo Christians and people that'll say things like, well, I don't have to go to church to go to heaven. Well, that's true. You're exactly right. You don't have to go to church to go to heaven. You can still go to heaven, but you're never gonna fulfill your purpose and the calling that God has for you. Could, could I be married to my wife and never kiss her? Sure, but it's a lot more fun when I kiss her. Let's be honest, right? Could you be a Christian and never go to church? Sure you could. It's a lot more fun to be in the body, to be connected. And here's the thing, if I'm a solo Christian, there's no way I can be built together with other believers. 
If I just watch online, hey, online watchers right now, I love you. But if all I do is watch online, I'm not being sewn together. I'm not being built together with other people for the glory of God. Because I'm not, I'm not a solo temple. We are a temple together for God's glory. Built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Built on the, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. That we do this together. It's not supposed to be solo. That's not what God intended. This is why small groups are important, by the way. Small groups, I've told you this before. You're gonna forget this message. Some of you will forget it before you leave the parking lot today. That's okay, I'm not offended. I'm gonna forget this message too at some point, I promise. I've, it's the third time I've preaching it, I've been prepping it, I've been studying for it, I'm gonna forget it. But you will never forget the people who are walking with you in your worst moments. You're never gonna forget the person that you call because your kid went off the deep end. You're never gonna forget the person you called because there's trouble in your marriage. That's what your small group is for. I would love to be that person for every single one of you in our church. I can't do it. I don't have the bandwidth. No human can. That's why we have small groups because we grow in circles, not in rows. Rows are really important. I'm glad you're at church today. We worship together. We we. We come together to celebrate God. We come together to celebrate what God is doing. But I am telling you, something powerful happens when we are built together in the context of a small group. When, when our hearts are yoked together with someone else's heart and we walk together, that's what makes a difference. This is how we become the, the living stones that God wants us to become. This is how we become the dwelling place of God. So I wanna encourage you, small group semester's about to start. Get involved in a small group. Find your people. We'll help you find your people, but get connected so that you can be built together with people to become the dwelling place of God. And this passage reminded me of 1 Peter, and I wanna read this to you. 1 Peter chapter two. Remember what I said? Peter was talking to Jewish believers. Paul talked to primarily Gentile believers. In 1 Peter chapter two, verse four, it says this. You're coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He said, Jesus is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you're his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. So this is huge. He's talking to Jewish believers. And two of the things that Jewish believers held in high esteem were priests and the temple. And so Jesus confronts these two things in this statement. It's, I mean, Peter does. It's really interesting. So Peter says to this group of Jewish believers, he said, hey, let me start with the last one. He said, hey, you are priests. You don't have to go to your priest. You are a priest. And this was huge. This was monumental because they were used to the system where they'd have to take their sacrifice to the temple and offer sacrifice and the priest would intercede for them and the priest would talk to God and give them what they needed and all dole out absolution. And what Peter's saying here is, hey, you are a priest. And this is significant. He said, you offer sacrifice that pleases God. So he's shifting the whole paradigm. And then he says, this is so powerful. 
He said, you're living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What he's saying is, you don't have to go to a geographic location to worship. You are the temple. You are living stones. So he's echoing the same thing Paul's saying. See, we think this building is the church. It is not. You are the church. You are the living stones of the church. If, if, if Summit Church stopped meeting, they would use this building for something else. It, it would be a, I don't know, some sort of gathering center. They'd have concerts. I don't know what they would do with this building. They would do something else with it. So what makes it holy isn't that it's got a sign out front that says Summit Church. What makes it holy is the living stones that carry and steward God's glory. You are the living stones. You don't have to come here geographically to worship because you've got the Spirit of God dwelling in you. We come together to worship so we can be built together. We come together for worship so we can glorify God, so we can be edified as we see others glorifying God. This is why we come together. But you're living stones. The, uh, <clears throat> when we were in Greece, we went to the Parthenon. And we get to the Parthenon, and it's incredible. And it's built out of marble, and we notice that it's yellowed for the most part, but then they have these patches of gleaming white. And so someone asked a question. And, uh, and my friend, Joe Cormier, he pastors in Louisiana. He was with us on this trip and he brought this out to me. So I'm giving credit to Pastor Joe. But it was interesting because in this moment, we ask about what, okay, how come the white and the yellow? And, and our tour guide said, well, they discovered an issue with the stone when they started patching up the, the problem. So there would be faults and cracks and brokenness with the temple, and they attempted to patch it with material that was readily available. So they would patch this marble with limestone or with, uh, with concrete. And, and what they failed to recognize is that marble is considered a living stone. It... it expands and contracts with the temperature and with the weather. And so what would happen is you would apply the wrong kind of patch to it and it would limit the marble and it would actually cause greater damage to the stone because you patched it with the wrong substance. So the solution to this is to remove the substance and to go back to the original quarry to find the original marble and use it to heal the stone. And I couldn't help but think that so many of us are like this. We are the living stones in the temple of God and we experience brokenness in our lives. We experience loss and heartache and tragedy. And when this happens, what we do is we attempt to patch the brokenness in our lives whatever, with whatever substance is readily available. And we, we think we can cover up the brokenness and the patch and we're gonna be okay. And then what we don't understand is that we are living stones. And when weather comes, when storms come into our lives, there's no room for us to expand, to contract. And we're limited and we're broken even greater than what we were in the first place. And the only way to fix the brokenness in our lives is to go back to the builder, to the quarry, to go back to God and say, okay, God, I've been trying to fix this myself and I can't do it. It's the only way to heal broken living stone is to go back to the quarry. 
You are a living stone. So what happens when we put Jesus over everything as a church? Number one, conflict decreases. Number two, health increases. Number three, the kingdom advances. Um, over our last couple weeks in Greece, it was fun to see some of the sites that Paul went to. That was the point of our trip, was to visit the footsteps of Paul. So we got to see Philippi. Uh, we got to see Corinth. We got to see Thessaloniki. Some significant places where Paul planted churches and started movements. Um, and as we were standing in Corinth, we were standing on this place called the Bema, and it was common to have a Bema in, in Roman cities. Uh, and it was basically a platform in a common meeting place, in a, in a square. And so they would host Heralds who were bringing news from other places, they would come to the Bema and they would share their news. They would host dignitaries or celebrities. Alexander the Great actually spoke from the Bema in Corinth that we got to stand on. So he came to town, he got to share from this spot. This was also a spot where Paul, the Apostle Paul, preached the gospel to the people of Corinth. And as we were standing on this platform, it just struck me because I thought, man, every weekend I have the honor of being able to preach the gospel to people who are not adversarial toward me for the most part. <laughs> that they, they love me and are for me. And it's still challenging sometimes. But then I thought about Paul. The apostle Paul, who was not taking a plane to get from place to place. He was not driving a car to get from place to place or a tour bus. He was walking for the most part. Long distances. He was working really hard. And, and then as we were standing there, I was, imagining, I was imagining him facing hundreds of people in Corinth. And what he was doing was confronting their beliefs, their ideologies, their politics, their culture. And he was calling them to something greater. And I thought, how adversarial must those people have been toward Paul? And he got up there knowing, I don't have a single person on my side in this place except the people that I brought with me and I'm gonna preach the gospel. And the reason he did it was to start churches. Town to town to town. He would stay in a town until he raised up pastors to pastor the church. He was a church planner. We see biblically <laughs> that Paul was kidnapped, beaten, threatened. He was arrested and again, and again, and again, and again. It's recorded in scripture. He was sued in a lawsuits a couple of times. He was interrogated, he was ridiculed, he was ignored, he was shipwrecked, he was bitten by a viper. And at the end of his life, to pay him for all this, history tells us he was beheaded as a martyr. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says this. Paul says, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. The Holy Spirit told him ahead of time, wherever you go, you're gonna get imprisoned and persecuted. And Paul said, let's go. Why? Because Paul understood what it meant to live with Jesus over everything. He said, it's worth it. I will face persecution and abandonment and attacks and lawsuits and whatever it is, I'm happy to do it for the glory of God because Jesus is over everything. The kingdom must advance. See, Jesus was a church planner. He was the original church planner. He, he talked about the idea that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church that he was starting. 
His disciples were called by the Great Commission and they went out. The apostles went out all over the world starting churches. Paul wasn't the only one, but Paul was the most significant one. According to scripture, Paul started 14 churches by himself. We know that it was probably more like 20 and no telling how many churches were started after this, that he started churches that started churches. And we started Blairsville, and I love our Blairsville location, but Blairsville, I want you to know something. God's not through with you yet because God's gonna start churches through you someday. That's why we started Blairsville, not just to have a church in Blairsville, but to have a church that would send people to other places to start campuses, start, uh, start churches, start life-giving locations. We're starting Johnstown. My prayer is that Johnstown will eclipse Summit Indiana someday, that it'll be bigger, that it'll be known more, that God will do incredible things in Johnstown. It'll be a life-giving place where we are starting other churches from that location. That's my desire. That's my heart, and this is what Paul did. The Great Commission itself is a call to plant churches. Go, baptize, teach, make disciples. There's only one entity on planet Earth that does this, and it's the church. That's why it's so important for us to go. That's why it's so important for us to say, Jesus, you're over everything in my life. And the, and the greatest thing we can do for the kingdom is advance the kingdom. This is, what, this is what churches do who put Jesus over everything. They advance the kingdom by whatever means necessary. This is why we start churches. It's not because of my ego. I can promise you that. <laughs> there are cheaper ways to feed my ego. I can promise you. It's not for my ego. It's not because it's trendy. Because Man, I don't need that. It's hard work. We do it because Jesus is over everything for our church. And because of that, that means the kingdom must advance. So we go. Right now, I'm gonna turn it over to our host in Blairsville. I'll give you a chance to respond. I love you guys so very much. I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you. So today, we're talking a lot about the church but man, we've been talking a lot about you as well. So I wanna give you a chance to respond. Maybe today you're that person that uh, you have somebody to forgive. Maybe somebody's hurt you and you've held on to that. And there's bitterness or hurt, heartache, whatever it is, you're hanging on to that. I think the Holy Spirit's telling you today to forgive. Maybe you can't be reconciled with that person that's hurt you, that's okay. You can still forgive. Maybe you're somebody that I described from Matthew chapter five that you're fine, but you know somebody has a problem with you. And if you're mature, the Holy Spirit is probably telling you you need to go reconcile with that person. That's not my problem, no. Jesus said, this is what we do. Because we're gonna unleash something in the heavenly realm when we do it. drama decreases. Maybe you recognize today you're part of the body, but you're not really doing your part for the body. You attend, you consume, and that's great, but you recognize the fact, man, really, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not fulfilling my role in the church. And understand me today, um, we want you to serve in the church, but we hope that that leads to you serving out of the church as well. That it's not either or, it's and both. We want you to find what God's called you to do. And probably it's not to be a greeter every week for us. Hopefully God's called you to do something greater, but it's not either or, it's and both. But you say, I recognize that I'm not doing my part for the body. 
It's okay. Uh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will deal with you however he needs to deal with you. Maybe you recognize that you're part of this, this temple that God is building, this living stone, but you've been badly broken and damaged. And you've tried to fix your brokenness with your your own means by the things that you had readily available and you've recognized I've actually caused more damage to myself than what I started with. And I need to go back to Jesus. I need Jesus to bring healing to my life. I need Jesus to bring restoration to my life. I believe today is the day that's gonna happen. So let me pray with you. Lord, minister, in these next few moments, I pray that our hearts would be wide open to receive everything that you've got for us in this moment. I pray that there'd be no holding back that anything you ask for, we would willingly give to you. God, we'll do whatever you ask us to do. We'll go wherever you ask us to go. We will be fully submitted to you in this moment. I pray that you would build us together to be a temple for your dwelling place, to be a holy temple, to carry and steward your glory. Now, with nobody looking around, your head bowed, your eyes closed. If you'd say to me today, Mel, I know I'm not really serving God. I know I'm not in relationship with Jesus. Maybe you recognize that, that you've experienced brokenness and you've tried to fix it on your own and you realize, man, I'm just more broken than I was in the first place. I need to go back to the, the original quarry. I'm not gonna ask you to come forward. I just wanna pray for you. And if you wanna be included in that prayer to surrender your life to Jesus, whether it's the first time or whether it's a rededication, I wanna give you that chance. So if you're here today and you'd say, Mel, include me in this prayer, I wanna... Surrender my life to Jesus. I wanna go back to the original quarry to find healing and restoration. I can't do this on my own. If that's you, would you put your hand up real high where I can see it? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, two, three hands on my right. Thank you in the center section, sir. Yeah, thank you on my far left. I see you. Who else would say, Mel, that's me. Yeah, up in the balcony, I see you. Praise the Lord. Yeah, up here on my left. Thank you. Romans chapter 10, verse nine says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So we're gonna pray a prayer together. I'm gonna give you the words to say, but I want you to pray this prayer from your heart to God. And I'm gonna lead you in it, but this is your prayer. So let's pray this together. Say, Heavenly Father, thank you for giving Jesus your only son to pay the price for my sins on the cross. Today, I am broken and I need restoration that only you can bring. Heal me, forgive me, and use me for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause, can't we? <laughs> Scripture says you are a new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come. And we wanna help you walk in this new life we wanna help you figure out what does it mean for us to be built together as a temple for God. And, uh, and so we wanna help you with that. So if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, whether you raised your hand or not, um, help us help you. And the simplest thing for you to do would be to do one of two things. You can either fill out the card that's in the seat back in front of you and then take it to our next step table. It's out in the lobby by the main doors when we finish here in just a few minutes. Or you can text Summit PA to the number 94,000 and let us know about your decision that way. And even if you do that, I would encourage you, please stop by the, the next step table. Our team's gonna be there. They would love to help point you in the right direction so that you can be, again, be built together into the, the holy dwelling place of God. 
Here's what's gonna happen right now. Our team's gonna lead us in a final song. And while they're doing that, some of our prayer team's gonna be available down here and we would love to pray for you. We talked about the power of agreement today and what it means for us to come together and mingle our faiths together. And that's what our prayer team does. They're here to agree with you, to, to set something loose in the spiritual. Uh, so if you've got a need today, I wanna encourage you, don't stay in your seat as we begin to sing this final song. Step out, find one of our team, let them pray with you, let them agree with you, and let's see what God will do in that. So stand your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go, guys. I tell you all the time, I love you so very much, and I'm so glad I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week. We'll see you for, uh, for Missions Weekend here at Summit next weekend. God bless you. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.